everyone welcome to another episode of mind on the game a vent sports podcast series hosted by me freddie cocker each pod i check in with men and women from across the sporting landscape we discuss their sporting journeys their mental health and how they keep their mind on the game i am delighted to say that we have our first ever female guest on mind on the game for today's show after a substantial search and many blank emails and DMs, my special guest for this episode is Megan Hughes. Meg is currently studying at Durham University, but has previously played for Leeds United Women, as well as Geisley Vixens and now Durham University's second team where she currently plays. The importance of having a strong support network, juggling life with sport and managing her anxiety before games is on the menu for this episode. Here's how this episode of Mind on the Game went down. Meg, welcome to Mind on the Game and thanks so much for being the first female guest on this series. It's taken a lot of blanked emails and DMs from other people to get to get to this place. I'm very happy about this. First off, how are you and how are you dealing with this global pandemic we are living in? Because you are unfortunately a first year university student, so I can't imagine what you're kind of going through right now. Yeah, I'm doing well, thank you. And yeah, on the whole, I'm just kind of plodding along. I feel like everyone else, it's one of those, you've just got to knuckle down and get on with it. It's rubbish, but everyone's in the same situation, unfortunately. So yeah, obviously not an ideal time to have started uni this year, but I've just kind of really rolled with the punches and I've tried to make the best out of what is not great a situation, but I've really enjoyed uni so far. And I feel like even though there's been lots of restrictions whilst I've been here, that means there's only good things to look forward to once everything's lifted, hopefully in the next coming months. That's a great and optimistic viewpoint, Megan, probably something that I couldn't have at this point. So fair play to you on that. I'm really excited to show the other side of sport from a female lens on this podcast, Megan. So shall we just crack on with the show? Let's start Mind on the Game as we always do with your football journey, Meg. So I ask every guest this question first. Tell me how you discovered football, who took you to your first kickabout, your first match, and how did you fall in love with the game? So I first got really into football when I was around six years old. In fact, my dad actually took my brother, my older brother, to a local training session in the park and I had to come because of childcare reasons. So I was just stood on the sideline with my dad watching my brother train. And I thought, oh, that actually looks quite fun. I think I'd like to have a go at this. So my dad looked for a local club and at the time there wasn't actually any local girls teams. So I had to go join the local boys team. So I started training with boys at six up until about nine years old when my dad, who with a few of the other girls that were interested in the local area, helped to join up the first girls team. And that was amazing because, like I said, for three years, I'd never knew anything other than boys playing football. I didn't really see any women on the TV playing football. I didn't necessarily feel the odd one out. I just thought that's how it was. And, you know, I just got on with it. So then to be able to play in my first girls team was quite amazing because, you know, it showed that girls can play this too and girls are interested in this too. It's not just something that boys can get involved in. So that was great. Yeah, so I played in my local team up until the age of 15 where I got scouted for Leeds United RTC, which is like Leeds United Academy. And I played there for two years. I played against some amazing teams like Manchester City, Man United, Liverpool, etc. 
and that was an incredible experience for me. I had some amazing memories there and I really improved as a footballer. And then following on from the academy, my first women's team I joined was Geisley Vixens, which played in the third division of women's football in the Women's National League. And there, that was my first real insight to women's football. And I, I think I underestimated the gulf between girls football and women's football. It really is just another level. The professionalism, even of these women who have got, you know, full-time jobs, they work five days a week and they dedicate, you know, three evenings a week of two hours of training and they travel at the weekends. It really is a massive commitment, but, you know, for the love of the game, people do it. They don't get paid for it. They don't get reimbursed for it, but... That was just such a great experience for me, playing with some incredible women, getting loads of experience in uh, playing against older opposition. And I spent one season at Geyser Vixens and from there I moved on to Leeds United Women, who were also in the National League. And that was just an incredible experience in itself, really. We got to train at Thorpe Arch, so we had all of the facilities at our disposal. It was quite incredible. We had physios. You know, we had some of the best training equipment for the whole league, essentially. We had some amazing coaches and my whole time at Leeds United, that was incredible. Not only just playing for the badge, because that in itself was a, was an honour, but again, playing against some fantastic opposition and playing alongside some really great girls. So unfortunately, after Leeds is when I had to leave to join university and then obviously Corona came. So there hasn't really been any women's football for the time being, but hopefully it looks like its return is on the horizon but for now, I've just been trying to play where I can. Obviously, during a pandemic, I'm currently playing for the women's team at university. And I'm hoping to join a national league team here when restrictions are lifted. Before we do a deep dive into Leeds and Geisley, I just want to go back to your youth career. When you were playing in that boys team, obviously kids at that age are pretty impressionable. Do you remember any of them reacting negatively to you or was it quite normalised and seamless? I think at the start it was weird for them because they were like, why is a girl playing with us? It's only ever been boys. But one thing that I actually really enjoyed was after that first initial a bit, you know, raised eyebrows of there's a girl playing with us, they treated me as one of the boys. And I don't like that phrase, but, you know, I'm saying it in the context of after they got over this initial kind of what's going on here, I was getting tackled like every other guy on the pitch. I was getting shoved like every other guy on the pitch. I really enjoyed the immersion amongst the boys and I think that really toughened me up and I grew a really hard skin from that. And I actually really appreciate it in a way after they got over the fact that I was a girl because it was just like playing with anyone else and I got a lot of experience from just playing with these boys and you know the physicality of it and like the chat of it. And that was something that I had to actually try and take into when I was playing with girls. But also, obviously, for a lot of girls, they'd never had that experience. So it was finding that balance of, you know, doing the tough tackles and giving the elbow. But then also for the girls, they've got to learn this themselves and they've never really been in this like environment. So, you know, it was it was finding a balance between them. But it was something that I'm really glad, actually, I had the experience of doing. Mm, sounds like they taught you a lot about resilience as well. Can you walk me through the first important match of note that you played, whether that's for Geisley, for Leeds, or whether that was, you know, during your youth career and, and that mental process, if you can, you know, were there any nerves or anxieties and, and how did the game go? I would say probably my first team debut for Geisley was one of my most important matches. It was a County Cup game and we were reigning County Cup champions. So obviously there was a lot we were expected to win. And like I said, it was my first team debut. So, you know, I trained with all these girls, but this was the first time I was playing with them in a match. And I just, 
you know, I have awful anxiety before matches and I just fill my head with all these things of dread and, you know, what if I let the team down? I'm a defender, so what if I make the pass that leads to a goal or if I make the mistake? So there was that pressure of, you know, not letting the team down, but also the fact that this was my first team debut and the manager had trusted me to go on and win a match that we were expected to win. So there was that pressure of, you know, going that way and expecting a great performance. So that was a proud moment for me, absolutely, but also a very nerve-wracking moment for me. On Mind of the Game, we always talk about a bad game or a big mistake or failure that every guest has made. And most importantly, so we can normalise making mistakes for our listeners, Meg, what they learned from it as well. Is there a story you feel comfortable sharing? I mean, I've had plenty. I'm sure I've had plenty of mistakes on the pitch. Too many to count. But I mean, one that does stick out in my mind, I just joined Leeds United Women and it was pre-season so you know it's the time that everyone's playing matches it's the time for a manager to see what you know how what he thinks of you how you play it's you know it's the time for first impressions really so pre-season you know you want to put some good performances in and set you know start the season right yes yeah, so i was playing against Huddersfield women in a pre-season match and i started the game and i made a back pass to the keeper that was not strong enough and the defender ran onto it rounded the keeper and somehow, by some miracle, I managed to make it back in time to block it from going into the net. But I remember thinking, you know, that's it. You, you've ruined it. You know, that's your season over. Don't expect any first team time. This is your one of your first pre-season games and this is how you play. And I just felt crushed. But obviously, in the middle of a match, you will just have to keep going. But I remember thinking, oh, my God, this is it. That's my mistake. And I really let it kind of define me and define the rest of my match. And that's something that I've always really struggled with because obviously it's such a fast paced environment. If you do make a mistake on the pitch, you've just got to keep going. But I really let myself get in my head. And when I do make these errors, I think, oh God, everyone's going to hate me. I've thrown the match away. I've ruined it. It's just a really difficult place for me to get out of. This builds nicely into my next question, Meg, which is what I always ask every guest on Mind on the Game, which is what mental tools or techniques do you use before or during the game to keep your mind on the game, especially in your case when it comes to the anxiety and moving past an individual mistake that you make in a game? Something that my dad always tells me because he knows how awful, I like how nerve-wracked I am before a match, he's like, there's no point worrying about something that you've got no control over. There's no point worrying about a game. There's no point worrying what if I make a mistake? What if I do this? Or what if X, Y or Z happens? Because worrying is not going to change the outcome. It's not going to affect the outcome. It's not going to help you improve the outcome. At the end of the day, it's just going to make you feel worse about yourself and probably worse than your performance on the pitch. So, yeah, that's one thing I have to try to tell myself is if I'm sat here worrying about it, is it actually going to change the outcome or is it just going to carry on making me feel worse? And the vast majority of the time, it doesn't change the outcome and it just makes me feel worse. So it's something that I just have to remind myself of and, you know, check myself when it does happen. GCSEs and A-levels, especially A-levels, are pretty stressful things to do, Meg. I always say to my friends and anyone who asks me that I found my A-levels to be more difficult than my university degree. How did you manage them alongside football? And also, how did football help you as a positive distraction when perhaps revision was getting too stressful? Yeah, absolutely. It was the most incredible juggling act I think I've ever had to try and sort out. Both, obviously, the demand of GCSEs and A-levels are insane academically. And then, obviously, I had to try weave into that three nights a week of training. You know, the travel, I'd often, especially for when I was playing at Leeds United Academy, for example, we had three nights of training a week, two hours at a time, in a, a round journey that was about an hour, an hour and a half. 
So I had to find a schedule and quickly of how I was managing my schoolwork and my revision and then still being able to go to training. So absolutely, it was a balancing act and it was one that I didn't work out immediately or straight away. I feel like it just came with experience and learning what worked for me and what didn't. But once I did, when you hit like that sweet spot of the balancing act, it worked really well. And like you said, I actually really appreciated football as it did provide a distraction for me and it allowed me to release all the stress that was being built up over revision and over these exams. So of course, whilst it was difficult to play football and revise for you know these really important exams, it was such a great outlet for me. I have two hours in the evening to completely forget about what was going on, to completely forget about the stress and just play football, a sport I loved with some really great people. So yeah, absolutely it was difficult, but I don't know how I would have you know relieved my stress otherwise if I hadn't had football during those times. You told me off air that you were getting university offers on the way to training, you were having really late nights on weekdays to get to and from training and then get yourself up for school quite early afterwards. Was it hard to maintain that life balance and have a stereotypical teenage experience and and did you ever get any FOMO or fear of missing out about that when you saw your friends not living the life you were perhaps leading? Yeah, incredibly. I mean, it's always horrible, you know, when you're sat there watching your friends have fun or watching something that you're missing out on. I love football so much. So for me, it was really a sacrifice I was willing to make. I always have put academics first and my parents have said to me since day one, especially when I joined Leeds United Academy, you know, your school comes first and football comes second. If school starts dropping because of football, then that will be an issue that we have to sort out straight away. So, of course, it was difficult and I knew the stakes. I knew that the priority had to be academics, but football is my passion and football is my love. So because of that, I went out of my way to make sure that I found a balance. And sometimes that did mean sacrificing things, sacrificing time with friends or nights out. But I mean, in the grand scheme of things, I have years and years to do that. I've got years to see my friends and I don't really have years and years to play football for Leeds United, for example. So it was difficult and I knew the sacrifices that would come from it, but it was ones I was willing to make. Let's go back to your playing career a little bit, if we can, because you told me off air that you found it really beneficial when you were playing with Guysley and I guess to some extent Leeds United to make new connections with local girls in your area. Is that been a big positive for you in your mental health? Yeah, it's been amazing because it's the opportunity to meet people that are really in similar situations to you. I played with a lot of girls my age at Guysley who also just made the journey into women's football. So they were either, you know, just at the end of their school career or they just started university themselves. So we were all in the same boat, really. We were all sharing the same experiences, sharing the same balancing act, working out how to juggle the schoolwork with the football But yeah, it was great. It was talking to people who understand as well. Not that my friends outside of football, not that I felt I couldn't go to them. You know, people that are in the situation and sharing the same experiences as you, who then, of course, come across the same hardships as you or the same mental health struggles as you. It's really great having people who understand that are in the same situation themselves to talk about it and get through it together. Your football career is still pretty early on, Meg. But what coach or manager has been the best for your mental health, do you think, and why? um, I'd probably say my coach at Leeds United Women, Dan O'Hearn, he made it clear from the start that any time there was anything you needed to talk about, any struggles you were having on, off the pitch, 
there was always someone there. He was there. There was also personnel, like Leeds United staff that there were, were there. There was lots of outlets for people to go to. And I think he also really encouraged like a community sense within the team. The captain, of course, was the captain of our team, but she also was the captain, you know, and she was a friend, really. You could go to her. You could talk about three things with her. It was really nice when I joined the team that immediately I got that understanding of it's okay if you've got struggles. It's okay if... You know, you need to talk about something. There's plenty of people there to talk through it with. So that was really welcoming and reassuring. Before we move on to social media, Meg, I just want to go back to the part where you talked about resilience and be exposed to that more aggressive behaviour or more aggressive chat from male players. How does it differ between men and the women's game? And do you think that women should, in the game, be taught more about that or be exposed to it? You know, what is the kind of difference there? What is your perspective on it? I think there's a healthy level of aggressiveness and banter and chat on the field that I think is good for the game. And I think it improves competitiveness and, you know, drive and fight. Which, And I think obviously those are very important when you're playing a game of football. But I think very often that line is crossed, especially by men and by women too. I mean, there's been lots of occasions on the on the football pitch where someone's made a comment or said something and that's been way over the line. And I feel like you have to kind of learn to filter out what is good and competitive and friendly and what is just downright unacceptable I mean even the men's side of things for example I've had male referees refereeing some of my games before that have made comments to me completely unprofessional completely out of line and that just kind of shows me that there's still some way to go about learning what is acceptable to say on a football pitch and what brings the competitiveness and it encourages your team and what is just unacceptable and what crosses the line so for example I remember once I was playing a match for Leeds United women and the ref told me I needed to act more like a lady on the field. And that to me told me all I needed to know about how he saw women and what it meant to act like a lady. I think it's that awful stereotype of, you know, acting like a lady is awful. I hate the phrase and and I still dislike it when uh, women's teams are called so-and-so ladies. I just think this whole lady idea has such a negative stereotype behind it and such a damaging stereotype about, uh, behind it. And why should I have to act like a lady on the football pitch when the men can get nitty and gritty and make those rough challenges and get up in each other's faces, whatever? Women can do that as well. And women can have that drive and competitiveness as well. So we don't have to act like a lady on the pitch. We want to fight and drive and win just as much as the men do. Social media in football is something you're quite keen to discuss on the pod, Meg. Less so your own personal experiences of using it and the pressure you find, but more the social media experience of being a female footballer and what you receive back. Tell me more about this and the mental health challenges it presents, as I understand it isn't just binary positive or negative comments you receive. Yeah, comments in general in social media kind of took a turn when I started playing women's football. I think there's still, unfortunately, those people on social media that exist that look towards women's football not as entertainment or something to watch as a good game of football, but as something more sexualised and more, you know, a way to still objectify women. So, yeah, especially when I started playing women's football, I get some really weird comments in social media and... You know, just unwelcome comments. And I think it was a shock to start with because I thought, why on earth are you saying this? What what a strange thing to say. But then you just got to really learn to deal with it, unfortunately. Even at my level, I was playing third tier women's football, so I can't even imagine what it must be for those playing, 
you know championship and wsl but yeah unfortunately like i said there there are still the existence of some men who don't take women for how they should take it a really great game of competitive football they take it for a way to you know make inappropriate advances and comments but you know you've just got to learn to deal with that unfortunately do you think it made you grow up quicker than you might have anticipated yeah absolutely i mean i was 16 when i joined guysley and i you know was getting these comments fairly quickly i feel more so at leeds united women because obviously leeds united is quite a household name so we would have comments and there, you know, there would be times where we would, you know, talk as a team in training and there'd be a few names that always stood out as household names is the wrong way to phrase it. But names that people, all the wit girls knew of due to weird comments, weird gestures, weird just things on social media in general. So, you know, shared experience, I guess it's nice that you could discuss it with your teammates but it does make you grow up and it does make you see that kind of darker side to women's football because I put on a kit and went and played every Sunday for the love of the game whereas some people see it as a way like I said to sexualize women or to objectify or to make sexist or misogynistic comments so absolutely made me grow up but you know the I feel like once you've had you've read one you've kind of read them all so it wasn't too difficult to get over like you said your teammates were a really great source of help for you was it important in having that sisterhood but I guess unfortunately not centered around the best reason if that makes sense yeah absolutely like I said because unfortunately we kind of were all going through the same experience with this ugly side to social media around women's football we could talk about it we could kind of lean on each other's shoulder if we needed to but we always knew that if that it ever reached a point where it was something serious, there was always someone to go to and there was someone always who would listen to us and hear what we were saying. But on the whole, I mean, we all kind of learned to just get over it, ignore it. Unfortunately, it's like in many cases with sport or anything really in society, it's that small minority of people who ruin it. But, you know, they are a small minority and thankfully we could all talk about it and understand each other's experience and help each other through it. I think our first priority is to say we should be tackling the men who are exhibiting this behaviour towards female footballers. But as well as this, and I don't want to detract from that priority, how do you think we support female players when they first experience this, whether it's a handbook provided to them, practical mental health support? What can you tell me here? I think when girls start playing women's football, it would be great if we were just informed of it from the start just kind of almost like a warning like you may come across x y and z and here's how you can deal with them because I've loved for it for women to be able to play football and it never have have to be an experience that they have to go through but unfortunately the likelihood it will be so it would be great yeah like you said if there was just a kind of pre-warning and a kind of how-to method of dealing with it coping with it or if you do really have an issue with it where you can go to talk about it I think that would be really helpful. Do you think enough is being done to even attempt to tackle it? From when we chatted off air, Meg, it sounds like, much like mental health, a lot of clubs will treat a tiny level of tacit support as a tick box exercise. Would you agree with that or not? I mean, to an extent, yes. Really, at the level I was playing at third tier, everyone was aware of it and everyone knew that it happened from time to time. But I think it never really reached a level where it was something that needed to be tackled head on per se. Not to say that it's not an issue and it needs to be sorted. 
it was more one of those things that everyone kind of knew it was slightly inevitable. So it was more just a case of understanding that it would happen at some point and dealing with it. But I definitely think as for those professional players in the you know championship in the WSL, it's something that absolutely needs to be tackled head on because at the end of the day, all women want to do is play their football and play, you know, it's their career. They want to do the best they can. And the last thing they need to see is when they've come off the field is these weird and creepy and unnecessary comments from people on social media. So absolutely, I think for the women it's who, you know, who play football as a career, it shouldn't be something that they have to be objected to or have to learn to deal with. You know, it should never be something that should just be an everyday part of life. So, yeah, it definitely needs to be uh, sorted. And just finally, Meg, before we move on, how do you think football has shaped you into the person I'm speaking to today? And what has it taught you about yourself? God, Um, football has been a major part of my life since I was a young child. And I think it's taught me a vast array of things, really, from playing with boys, you know, being resilient and growing that kind of thicker skin to playing, you know, in some really amazing women's teams. It's learning to deal with the pressure and how to perform without letting it get on top of you. Also, just on a more like practical side of things, like you know, timetabling and organising my time, obviously I've had to do a lot of that as I've grown up. And also learning the sacrifices that others have made for me, like my dad, for example. Obviously, I couldn't drive for the this whole time, so my dad has made pretty much every sacrifice alongside with me, whether it's been driving me to training, driving me to matches, getting my kit, whatever. So, you know, I have to understand that, especially women's football, so many sacrifices are made and often it's sacrifices that impact other people as well. You know, it's learning how to cope with these sacrifices, but also how to appreciate all the effort that everyone else makes for you. Before we move on to your own journey, Meg, I just want to briefly touch on the work you do as part of Her Football Hub as well, which really interested me. Can you tell me a bit about it and how you got involved? Yeah, so I was just scrolling through Twitter one day and I happened to stumble across this page that was dedicated to broadcasting and informing people about the world of women's football. And it was really kind of the first publication I'd seen like this on Twitter, a page that was wholly dedicated to promoting women's football, which was really amazing to see as someone who's really passionate about that myself. So there was an ad out for writers for the page. So I, you know, just sent a message. I said I was interested. And really, that was about a year and a half ago now. And it's gone from strength to strength from there. I'm now on the social media team. I'm also a journalist. So I write articles for them. I've written on some really amazing topics and spoken to some really inspiring people, which is something I'm really proud of. And it's a site now that's really growing into a powerhouse of women's football. And it's really only going up from here. It's really great to see. And what impact does writing have on your mental health? I imagine it's been good for the CV when you were sending a few university applications out. Yeah, it's been really great. It's lovely to kind of explore another side to women's football that's off the field, reading and exploring about other people's experiences and other challenges that exist in the game that aren't just necessarily based on the field, because obviously there's a whole world to women's football off of it. That's been really interesting and having the opportunity to speak to some of these people who help coordinate this because I think people tend to forget how much of an operation it is to get women's football to the level it was off the field and some of the huge names that have been instrumental in that. 
So of course it's been great for the CV, but just as a personal achievement and development, it's been really, really fun to do. When you said about having or doing interviews with really inspirational people, one person you mentioned to me off air was Sheffield United player Sophie Walton, who you interviewed, particularly around the stigma in pregnancy in women's football. Now, for the listeners who don't know, just tell the listeners about this stigma and why the interview was a source of pride for you. Right. So essentially today there's a huge stigma around mothers in professional sport and how, of course, women want to carry on playing sport at the top level. But also naturally for some of them, they also want to become mothers. And there's been a huge issue surrounding this for years now about how women can juggle professional sport and motherhood and the support they receive, you know, in trying to be a mother and still playing at the top level. So this was something that really interested me. And I actually played with Sophie when I was at Geisley, who was this incredible role model for the whole club, essentially. And I got in touch with her because she has a little boy herself. And she's played at some of the top level in women's football. She's played in uh, for England and she's played in plenty of FA Cup finals. And she, I just thought, would be the perfect person to offer some more insight on this. So, yeah, I got in touch with her and we just had a really great chat, really, about how she had to deal with being one of the first people in professional women's football to have a child and all the challenges she faced and how she got to overcome that. And I mean, now... Obviously, she faced lots of challenges at the beginning, but she's the one who's laughing at the end, really, because she's playing at Sheffield United. You know, they're challenging for promotion to the WSL and she's also got a little boy. So it was really inspiring to talk to her. We talked all about Megan, the footballer and aspiring writer. I want to delve a bit deeper and talk about your own journey, Meg. So obviously, as you've said, you're still at quite an early age, but... If you can, walk me through your early life and the teenage years you remember. And whether looking back, do you think you had any early mental health experiences? Who's the Meg we meet at this point? Yeah, so like you said, obviously I've not had too much experience yet. But I think having played football throughout all of my early life and up to now, I think that has really shaped kind of my mental health. Like I said, dealing with anxiety before matches has always been a massive struggle for me. And it's always been something I've really had to battle and try um, overcome. Something I still don't think I've fully overcome today, but it's more about learning to deal with it and learning some coping strategies. But also learning how to sometimes have to watch from a distance. Playing football, like we've already spoken about, I've had to make some sacrifices and miss out on things. And sometimes that can be really quite miserable, watching from afar and watching your friends have fun, you know, doing experiences that you can't necessarily get involved in. I've had to learn how to deal with that as well and how just because I'm not there doesn't mean it's going to be the end of the world. And I'm going to, sometimes it's that anxiety of I'm going to miss out on all these amazing experiences and what if I've got no memories left to tell or, you know, I can't get involved. But yeah, it's just learning how to get over that and deal with that really. Where do you think the source of the anxiety comes from? Is it a fear of making mistakes, playing in front of people or perhaps something deeper you haven't quite figured out yet? I think it's the fear of letting people down. I'm a massive people pleaser and I just want to do right by everyone. So it was just that fear of going on the pitch and making a mistake or losing a match, letting my teammates down, letting my dad down. Like I said, he's made so many sacrifices for me. And I think I'm so overtly aware of that, that I almost sometimes don't want to 
go on the pitch because I think if I make a mistake, you know, he's going to think, why have I driven her here? And why have I given up my whole weekend for this match? And why have I given up my last week to take her to training? And I'm just so conscious of not letting my dad down because he's my best friend, he's my role model, and he, I just obviously want to make him proud. So I think it was that idea of if I step onto the pitch and make a mistake, well, he might think, well, what's the point of all of this? So, yeah, it's something that is I've really, really struggled with, and I, not even just in football, in everyday life. Obviously, I, I always want to be the best I can be, and I think that's just my competitive side. I would get really wound up, and I think, well, what if I do something wrong, and what if I don't get 100% or top marks, or if I don't make the best impression because I hate letting people down and myself down? We've spoken about the role your dad's played in your life, Meg, and I'm sure he's listening, so you've bigged him up really well there. How important has he been with your football, your mental health? Because that's half the battle, isn't it, when you have a strong support network? Yeah, absolutely. My dad has been absolutely pivotal to my whole football career. He has supported me from the start, from you know when there was no women playing in my in the local team. He's always made sure I've had a place in football. He's always supported me. He took on a voluntary role, for example, at my local club when I started out as the treasurer to make sure that the team could carry on playing. And he, you know, organised tournaments and he helped organise a, a football tour abroad and he ran a half marathon to earn funding so we could go on this tour. My dad has made sacrifices my whole footballing life to make sure I can play football and enjoy the game. And this is on top of a really demanding career he has already. So I'm so, so aware of everything he's done for me. And I've got no way to put into words how appreciative I am of it. Because at the end of the day, I play for myself, but I also play for him. I just want to make him proud. And, you know, we're both involved in a sport that we love. And it's really nice that we have that one thing that we can share our passion for. My goal every day is to make my dad proud of me and my mum, of course, but my dad, he, he's on the football side of things, so he's my best friend. Going back to what you said about sacrifices, Meg, are there any realities which people might not see or sacrifices you've made in other parts of your life? For example, friendships, relationships, holidays, or have you been able to maintain all of those as best as you can? I've tried to maintain all of them as best I can. I mean, you may have to ask them how successfully I've done so. Friendships and all of that, you know, the support network outside of football has always been so important to me. So I've always made sure I've gone out my way to maintain that and keep that going because my friends outside of football are just important to me as my friends inside of football. I think they can all appreciate and understand as well that I was playing at a fairly competitive level. So oftentimes I did have to make sacrifices or I couldn't come to X or I couldn't do Y. But ultimately, they're such great friends that they understood and they understood that sometimes those things needed to be done so I could play the sport I love and they could see that it was my passion so they supported me all the way in it so I, I like I would do for them for any of their own passion so that was really just amazing oh, yeah, I've got an amazing set of friends so I've been really really lucky actually. And as a final question Meg when we spoke off air what struck me I think was how mature you are in the way you communicate articulate yourself and you've done that as well on this pod you seemed pretty media trained already do you think football has institutionalised you in that way from a young age and developed that part of you? Or is it something innate that you've just gotten better at when it comes to your maturity? Yeah, absolutely. I think football's played a big role in it. When I was at Leeds United Women, there was a lot of media inclusion on the women's side of the team. Often LUTV came and filmed our training. I've done a couple of match day analysis on LUTV with people in the studio, which was an incredible experience. So definitely 
the whole setup at Leeds has helped me become more articulate, like you said, but just in general, I love, you know, presenting and speaking to crowds. And it's definitely something I'd love to pursue further, whether that be in sports broadcasting or likewise, I love speaking about things I'm passionate about. And especially when it comes to women's football, I can talk all day long. So probably don't don't ask me too many more questions. I won't shut up otherwise. But um, no, yeah, I've definitely playing football has helped me articulate myself more especially to do with women's football because often you have to be outspoken because there's so many critics and there's so many people who've got so many strong opinions on what we're doing wrong or what we shouldn't be paid or what we shouldn't be shown on tv so i'm no stranger to putting those people in their place We have come to the final topic of conversation, Meg, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests, which is a general natter and chat about mental health. So firstly, at time of recording, and you can definitely include the worldwide circumstances we are living in, or you can exclude them if you want, but how would you say your mental health is at the moment? At the moment, it's fairly well. It's going fairly well. I'm back at university now, so it's definitely helped being around my friends and a more familiar university environment. Obviously, learning from home was not doing great things for my mental health. It just wasn't the right environment. Being surrounded by my family 24-7, I feel like you need like a separation between that work and family life. And that was something you I just couldn't have at home. And I think that led to like quite a lot of attention at home as well, because everyone's just been cooped up. I mean, of course, everyone's in the same situation, cooped up, nowhere to go, stuck in the same four walls. So it has been really difficult trying to navigate that. But now I'm back at university, I'm definitely doing better. I'm in the right academic headspace, crack on with all my work. Of course, it's still a struggle when, you know, there's so many restrictions and there's so many things you still can't do. And there's so much of the university experience, I feel I still haven't, you know, had the chance to experience it. But I'm telling myself, all in good time, it will come and all in good time. So fingers crossed. Can you tell me about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health? Who was it with? What impact did it have? And looking back, and you might not have to look back very far, did it feel like a big moment or a big burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders? Or did it feel like something fairly insignificant and normalised? Um... I'd say the first time I properly spoke about it and recognised it as an issue was with my anxiety before football with my dad. It came on at such a young age, really, even at grassroots level, playing in you know a team at the weekend that it didn't mean anything. It didn't have any significance to the game. I'd sit there beforehand and I wouldn't be able to eat breakfast. I wouldn't be able to drink anything. Even looking at food made me feel sick. I just was so anxious, you know, for a game that on the whole was insignificant and my dad would always be like why what how why can't you eat before a match it's you know it's a it's a football match you, you love football why why does it make you so nervous and it wasn't a big deal to me at the time I think my dad always knew that I felt just covered in dread before a match and he could always really see that so talking about it with him was fairly natural and it was something that we've kind of really gone through together because he was always you know encouraging me to at least have a banana or something for the match just for energy reasons if not anything else it was a natural conversation to have and it, it did help definitely talking about it because you know I could share my experience and the troubles that I was having with someone who wasn't experiencing it and therefore maybe from an outsider's perspective they could give me tips on how to improve and then of course I could go into the football and speak about it with girls in the football world who then could obviously offer me experience 
from someone who's also doing the same thing as me. So yeah, it was a natural conversation to have, but it did help, definitely. And outside of football, what triggers do you think you have when it comes to your mental health? So this could be things people might say to you, it could be a sound, could be a social environment, or have you not figured all of them out yet? I wouldn't say they're they're triggers necessarily. It's more when I know I have something coming up that is significant to me in some way, whether it's a big exam or a match or some sort of environment where I know I have to perform and do well or I have expectations of me. That's when it kicks in, this kind of dread and this kind of anxiety leading up to it, thinking, oh, my God, what if I fail? What if I make a fool of myself? What if I never want to show my face there again? So it's more kind of that when I know I have an event on in the horizon, it's that like looming dread that starts to come over me that is really difficult to deal with. And again, outside of football, what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? I find just talking and being around in a social environment with my friends helps so much. Oftentimes they're not experiencing the same issue that I have, but we're all in the same boat. And I feel like when you're talking with someone about it who can understand the issue or are in a similar environment to you where that issue can be found, it can really help. You know, whether it's be to do with academic pressure or social pressure, any sort of troubles that I might have, just speaking about it with them is such a weight off my shoulders and they can offer some really great advice. Even if it's not just advice, just being with people that offer me an environment where I can take my mind off of things can help so much because I feel like when I'm alone I can just get really in my head about things and over analyze things and over complicate things which eventually just makes it worse for myself so yeah definitely being with other people helps so much. We've talked about social media when it comes to football Meg you are a generation that has very much grown up with social media I always joke to friends and people when I do vent PR that I was lucky I only got bullied on Facebook when I was in year 11 but you have grown up with WhatsApp, Instagram, Snapchat, all of them, basically, every single platform. Oftentimes from the age of seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, I'm hearing that kids are getting smartphones now. How big has that pressure been for you and your friends? Yeah, social media has always been, it can be a great place, but equally a very dangerous place uh, for young people growing up. It was the thing in high school to, you know, get all these social media apps and be a big presence online. And of course, there was always pressures and issues that came with that. I think, especially growing up with it, it's that constant sense of there's so many, everyone obviously always posts all the great things on social media and all the amazing holidays they're having, all the amazing experience they've had, or it can be really difficult not to compare yourself or think I'm not doing as good as them or I haven't gone on an incredible holiday like them or I haven't had all these amazing experiences they're popping all over social media. So I think it's learning to separate reality from social media and learning that what is posted on Instagram is not real life. It's an idealised version of what someone wants you to see. So I've had that, like you said, I've grown up with it. So it's learning to kind of take everything you see with a pinch of salt and learn that it's not all fairies and rainbows as social media appears it to be. Most adults can't really handle social media. Well, I don't think they can. So I always say to people that I don't know how we expect young people to do that as well. Do you fear for this generation when it comes to their mental health and when it comes to social media? Of course, social media is an apps is a pivotal factor in people's mental health. I think it can be a positive place it can be and like a a safe place it can be it can also be a really terrible dangerous place 
So of course, there's always that worry that when people start looking at the wrong things on social media or start following the accounts that do post these idolised versions of life, it can be, of course, so detrimental to mental health. So it is a worry. And thankfully, I've learnt to take these things with a pinch of salt. But obviously, that's a challenge in itself. And not everyone can do that or understand that or see that, especially when you're younger, because you're a lot more impressionable. I definitely think it's something that young people is a challenge that young people have to deal with nowadays and something that, of course, can have a huge impact on their mental health. Have there been any friends that you've seen posting on social media, either in a toxic way or in a alarming way when it comes to red flags, where you've had to intervene or felt like you've had to speak to them on a one to one basis to help them and support them with their mental health because of social media? Thankfully, I've not had too many instances of this, but I've definitely had instances of people outside of my friendship circle or outside of my immediate friendship group that have posted such things on social media where, you know, you have to do take a step back and think this is not appropriate for social media or this is going to be damaging for someone who sees this on social media. And I think it's a lesson that everyone has to go through, whether you go through it in a really, in a great way in an early stage and you learn not to do it or whether you have to learn that lesson a hard way and way later on in your social media life, if you like. So of course, I think it's, you're bound to see it on social media, especially growing up where everything happens on social media. You are almost defined in high school by your social profile and what you post and how many followers you have and what social ranking that gives you. So it can be really difficult sometimes because I think a lot of people can attribute their self-worth to their social media profiles. And of course, that's such a dangerous path to go down. Do you think there's an easy solution to it or not? No, I don't think when it comes to social media, I think it's impossible to have a solution full stop, let alone it being easy. I think it's such a dangerous path to navigate social media. And I think you can get it so easily. You can get it so wrong. It's such a sensitive topic for so many people and I think it needs to be handled with such caution and care because like I said one wrong move and it can be so detrimental to someone's mental well-being mental health so absolutely not is it easy but just because something's not easy doesn't mean it's not worth doing social media of course you want to enjoy social media it'd be a fun and safe place for you to share your life online with your friends but there does have to be that understanding of Sometimes what you see on social media will be ugly and inappropriate and false and you have to learn how to deal with that and being exposed to that. And just finally, Meg, what more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to? I think it's being told from day dot that it's okay to speak out. I think there has definitely been a growing consciousness about social media in my generation where there's been more campaigns, more awareness, more time and effort dedicated to it. But still, I feel like the message isn't sent out clearly and strongly enough to everyone. I think especially concerning men. I know in high school, there was always still that idea of being a lad and manning up and being tough. And I think because a lot of the times, if you do dare show your emotions, that can it makes you weak or it shows some sort of weakness to your character. For some reason so I think being told from day one that 
it is okay to talk and also I think schools following up on this it's one thing saying you know we're here for you you can talk to us but then I feel like a lot of the time it's it's like a tick box and people say that okay all right we've covered the mental health side of things because we've told everyone that it's okay to talk and they can come to us if they need but I think unless you show active engagement with people and mental health it's all a bit of a show it's one thing saying it but it's another thing actually showing that you're willing in there and open to talk to people about their mental health. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of Mind on the Game. I want to say a big thanks to Meg for being my special guest on this episode. And I hope it's giving you an insight into the world of women's football and the myriad of challenges female footballers face. As always, thank you to all the venters who've tuned in. Remember, please, if you like what you've heard, give it a share on social media, tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Or if you like what we're doing here at Vents, please consider supporting our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash ventshelpuk or give us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts and help us with those algorithms. Stay tuned for the next episode of Mind on the Game. And remember, it's always okay to vent. Thank you.